You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Joe Swinson. She's deputy leader of the Liberal Democrat Party, former Equalities Minister and Undersecretary of State for Employment Relations and Consumer Affairs in the UK government 2010 to 2015. She has been an amazing advisor to me and she was on the board of one of my companies for a while. Very much an accidental entrepreneur. She is now author of a book called Equal Power and How You Can Make It Happen. Knowing Jo personally, it's safe to say she gets stuff done, she makes an impact, and now she's enabling other people to make a really important impact. So welcome to the podcast, Jo. <laughs> Lovely to be here and chatting with you, Vicky, Well, today. technically, I'm with you. Well, that's you true. Obvious, but, um, yes, you're not on the sofa, uh, for which my housekeeping skills are quite great. <laughs> <laughs> there are two related questions this week, and I'm sure they will resonate with anyone who has found themselves either an accidental entrepreneur or worries that they are essentially unemployable. The first person writes, the downside to running startups is when they fail, you become unemployable. I've now spent several years searching for employment, working as a consultant on temporary contracts and spending the rest of my time applying to many hundreds of jobs without success. With hindsight, I should have started another company when I had the money, but now I feel stuck spending my days thinking of how else I can get employed and trying new ideas as soon as they pop into my head. While I would love a board-level role, I just need to bring in an income at this point. Can you help? The second question, I recently lost my job with a large company, and I don't want to go back into that world. I have a startup idea I could make work, and some useful skills, and I feel if I don't do this now, I never will. But I don't know where to start to meet people or make connections, and everybody does seem very young compared to me. Also, while I'm not under urgent financial pressure, I really don't want to be poor forever. Should I take the plunge? So you know why I picked these questions for you, I suspect, uh, but the listeners probably don't. So perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about how you became an accidental entrepreneur, if you like, and yeah. <laughs> that experience. Absolutely. So, I mean, I um, I was a member of parliament, first elected at the age of 25. Uh, at that stage, I was the youngest member of parliament. So I'd worked a bit in business before that. I was a marketing manager um, for a radio station and then a, a digital media company. Um, but politics was, and it is my passion. And, uh, and I, you know, was elected for my home seat of Eastern Bartonshire in 2005. And I served as MP for a decade. And then... Um, in 2015, I lost my seat. And so I was then thrown into this world of, well, what do you do now when you're 35 years old and you have been an MP for 10 years, you have been, uh, in my case, I've been a government minister for three years in the business department and minister for women. And, uh, and of course, I had marketing skills from before, but sort of going back into marketing, I was 10 years, you know, out of the loop on uh, all of the developments and also, you know, was unlikely to go back into a job or even be hired for a job at a sort of the same level in the organisation that I would have left, but obviously did not have the, the the experience in that particular discipline and function. So 
so I was yeah thrown into well what what do you then do what does an, what does an ex MP do and so um, it, you know it didn't happen overnight but I you know I came to the conclusion that what I wanted to do was actually to be able to do my own thing and so set up my own consulting business and learned a huge amount through the process of doing that um, winning work and particularly I was consulting on issues of workplace diversity. Uh, and then also doing a, a range of public speaking. Uh, I was on the board of Clear Returns, obviously, because you know, and uh, and I also you know chaired a charity, so I sort of did a mix of um, paid and, and pro bono work, and had um, a lot more flexibility, which is one of the things that attracted me to it. It's it's a strange thing. I mean, the first person asking the question talks about being unemployable, uh, and it was their words. Although I've I've used them a couple of times in previous podcasts, I use it in in my TED talk. Um, and Callie Russell at Mulsey told me like he feels the pressure to get it right because he's going to be completely unemployable if he doesn't. And it's really weird thing when you come out of a highly pressured, highly skilled job that has been your life all of this period of time. It wasn't until I read your book, actually, that I got any sense of just how many business skills going into running a constituency office, for example. Yeah. Then you're being a minister as well, and you're sort of like running the country. All of these incredible skills, and yet you sort of sit there, probably not day one, but probably month one, going, what am I good for? Yeah. Well, and, and I think what was really interesting, and it, and it was frustrating, was the assumptions that other people make about what MPs do. And about the skill sets MPs have. Um, so, uh, and, and it was interesting because I was going through this experience at the same time as my husband, who had also been an MP. He'd been uh, an MP for less time, so he'd been there for five years. And before that, he'd been, uh, he was a chartered accountant. He'd worked um, uh, on um, at Deloitte, and then he'd, he'd run his own uh, consulting business. Um, but but he sort of was in the same situation. We were going off, we spoke to you know headhunters and recruitment companies and we, we were applying for various jobs and you know you would sort of get questions that assumed for example that MPs had no experience working in a team which of course is entirely um, you know contrary to what it's like when you're actually having to lead a team of volunteers as a, a candidate and a member of parliament and obviously within a political environment you don't get anything done if you're just doing it on your own you have to be getting people's buy-in constantly and those different stakeholder relationships but but there really wasn't the, the assumption that you would know how to do that or when it comes to things like motivating staff or people would assume also that, you know, MPs would, would be sort of, I don't know, diva-ish in some way. So so there was a lot of these um, effect, sort of assumptions that were effectively out there about what you, you could or couldn't do that you had to overcome before you even could get a hearing. And also because it's definitely in some ways an advantage to have that pre-existing brand that people know who you are but they know who you are and they think they know who you are yeah. oh yeah <laughs> because they know you from having done x or y but then there's other things that you've also done that were much less high profile so for example from my perspective the equality things that I did were often very high profile because the media likes writing about them but the work that I did you know basically being the government's shareholder um, in the post office because the government is the only shareholder in the, the post office and as the minister responsible and, and sort of managing that um, responsibility was something which didn't get nearly as much um, coverage um, which was actually one of the success stories because you know it's it's often an area which can go badly wrong for government and um, and so people wouldn't make that association so you, so I was actually having to fight with what people thought the they were getting if they were considering giving me a job uh, and actually what my skill set in reality was and I, and I suppose it's similar for people who have maybe come from a particular route, then run their own business, however they've got there, 
And people then assume that that's what their skills are and they might forget what they were doing eight years ago, which might be deeply relevant to whatever role they're going for. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really frustrating thing. I think both of these questions are slightly different, but they both hit that. Is it's, it's about not the skills that you have, because if you've, A, if you run a company, but also if you, if you run a country, if you run a constituency office, if you've been working in the corporate, you have a set of very appropriate skills that you can deploy. But it's the, it's the perception of that. I mean, I can't tell you the number of headhunters and people I've spoke to who've gone, oh, you're incredibly interesting, but impossible to place. Yeah. It's like, really? I've run a P&L, I've built a team, you know, I've employed people, I've hired people, I've fired people, I've managed the fight. You know, this is the bread and butter that has you lived up. Yeah. You know, this was the bread and butter of my stuff. The bit that you're seeing, you know, the shiny tech entrepreneur, the shiny yeah. minister is literally the tip yeah. of the iceberg. Exactly. Everything else is transferable. Definitely the conclusion I came to was that a recruitment generally is so conservative, the small c, that the assumptions that are made, and, and sometimes this is by the headhunters themselves, to be fair, sometimes the headhunters I spoke to are genuinely trying to be much more diverse in the candidates they put forward, not just in terms of gender and ethnicity and all of those things which are important, but also in terms of background and somebody who's done something that is related but relevant but not the same thing. But they sometimes get frustrated when they put the candidates forward and the person doing the recruitment at the end of the day plumps for the safe option, the person who's done the same thing but in a slightly smaller company. And I do think that this attitude probably means that we we lose out on some great talented hires in particular organisations. And as a country, that's not good for our economy because you're then losing that potential innovation. But it's hard to to get around that that sort of safety first approach to recruitment where people don't really feel that they can take any risk or that they assume that there's no risk in somebody that's already done it somewhere else. But of course, there's no guarantee. Yeah, the fact that they're available or or looking to change is is quite often a flag in itself. I feel for the first person who asks the question says, you know, that they feel torn between on the one hand, like frantically trying to start whatever idea they come up with first, which I did my whole TED talk about. This is panic yeah. to do something, yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah. Because the thought of not is is terrifying. Yeah. Versus applying for all of these hundreds of jobs that they get knocked back from. I mean, I did a little bit of that, but I just yeah. gave up. My yeah. ego and my self-esteem couldn't take the yeah. pointless knocks. I just quickly went, right, you know what? I am unemployable in this sense of the word. Move on. Yeah. Make my own. But then I realized that I had to do quite a lot of work to rebuild a brand kind of yes. rebuild that package yes. and I sort of I mean I have to say shamelessly looked at what you did mm. and, and copied a lot of it because you kind of like went out and you joined new networks yeah yeah you kind of like did your talks you got on some panels you went back to your own personal values and thought well what do I want to do all yeah. that so I copied a lot of that what, what yeah. was the process you went through well so I I, I I the Arab analogy that I used at the time was that for me it had felt uh, like for 10 years my life had been and uh, my career had been on some very clearly defined tracks because when you're in, in politics you know you've got the timetable of you know the parliamentary session the elections you've got local elections you've got Scottish parliament elections you've got general elections and um, you know obviously when you come to an election then there's a potential fork in the track because you don't know what the outcome is going to be but you you're generally on these pretty rigid train tracks and when I lost my seat um, that was one of the things that was simultaneously quite exciting and terrifying that suddenly it was like the train track had stopped 
And the path forward, therefore, was not obvious and not clear. And I had to just make my own path. But I also was quite deliberate. The analogy I used was it felt like I was in a bit of a wild flower meadow and I was meandering through. And I was quite deliberate that I wanted to be opening up my horizons in terms of new people and new ideas. So I reached out to lots of contacts. I, you know, I had so many cups of tea and coffees with people as part of that networking. You know, I, I used to joke that it was like being on maternity leave, but with much less cake. Obviously, <laughs> um, without you know the sleep deprivation in the same way, um, because it was it was about you don't know what opportunity is going to come from where, and so you really need to be open minded. And I I really enjoyed the um, the luxury, if you like, of being able to do that, but at the same time. As the person who asked the first question says, you've got this pressure of income, and 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 that managing that you can't. It means you can't really enjoy it. You know, if I'd known, um, you know, at the beginning of that time that I was going to have two years, there'd be a general election, and I'd rather I'd would my seat. I'd probably have felt much more relaxed and be able to deal with <laughs> with that time very differently. But I, but I, I I didn't feel relaxed about it. Because there was this constant pressure of, but you know, I've got a small child. My my husband's also, you know, job searching at the moment, and so we we do need to bring in an income, and it it kind of came together, like just at the right point, um, somehow. And there was a there was a serendipity to it. And serendipity that only comes from creating opportunities. True, true. You you created the these situations. But everything takes longer than you think. I mean, that was my big learning. You know, you would you you know you would you would expect that you had a meeting and something might come of it, but then to the person you'd had the meeting with, who might be interested in having some kind of commercial relationship where you actually get paid, actually it's not top of their agenda. And then it's it takes six weeks. Something else happens. Something gets delayed, and before you know it, you know five months have passed. Uh, and so that was quite stressful. But then later, there's things that you've done months and months ago that suddenly come through. Somebody that you had coffee with that you didn't think anything was going to come of it, it rings you up out of the blue, and actually there's an opportunity that you can be involved in. So um, I think getting used to that that slightly more random way of working that if you put out enough feelers, you can't always know what will you know what will convert into a lead and what will convert into business for your consultancy or or, or whatever your your particular route is. Um, but some of that will happen. I think that's so important to both people. Both people asking these questions with slightly different nuances. They need to be out there with people, building a tribe, networking. Um, but the frustrating thing, the difficult thing is you do not know how long it will take and it is never directly synchronous. Yeah. Um, and you almost, if you sat there worrying about the, the direct property you yeah. wouldn't do anything because it just doesn't work like no. that I, the, the advice I got which was great was always give first so when you meet with somebody you you try to see is there something I can give to you is there a connection that I've made in another world you know somebody else that I know that I've thought of they would be a really interesting person for you to speak to or is there an idea is there a research paper that I've read is there a you know is there is there something that that I've come across that would be helpful to you as the person sitting opposite me that I can follow up our meeting with and you sort of put that out into the world and and then some of it it does come back so that was that was really good advice um, that I got and not to worry about every meeting having some you know immediate payback because it won't and if you start judging it all by that then it's it's not going to work but but being very active and proactive about that networking. 
And it's interesting you talk about having coffees and like it being minus the cake. I've, I've unfortunately been doing too much of the cake, hence me being uh, much fatter now. I'm no longer a full-time <laughs> CEO. But that I just looked at having coffee as my job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. consultancy is a good middle-class way of saying I'm unemployed. Um, but actually, at least it comes with a structure. At yes. least it comes with a, a means to expense that coffee if required um, you know, because as part of your business development because it is business development it's just the business right now is you it's yeah. not, you've not necessarily got to the next idea yeah. yeah but that doesn't mean that everything you're doing is not building, building to the business of, of, of what you are I mean you, yeah. did you know have a sense at the beginning that you would end up with the book or did that come as part of the, the process? book was was quite early on that I decided I wanted to do it and I realised that that would be something which would also, and again, it was advice that I got. I mean, I don't, I think it'd be hard to say write a book just to give yourself a brand or a calling card, as some people said, because as I discovered, it's actually a lot more work to write a book than I anticipated. I mean, I, it's not like I thought it would be easy, but, um, you know, it was a very uh, intense process. Um, but nonetheless, it is part of, of building a brand of credibility, um, you know, on an issue and of really setting out your stall. And, and it, was an, it was a book I wanted to write because... I really care about gender inequality and I felt I'd learned a lot that I wanted to share and I wanted other people to feel empowered that they could do things too and that there was lots of ideas and ways people could do it that I wanted to put together. So that was quite early on but I think what I hadn't quite realised about my business was how fluid it would have to be because you start out with thinking you're going to do one thing um, that maybe you'll go in and you'll give advice to companies in this way, but then you realise that another company wants a training workshop delivered. And so you just have to be quite flexible. And then once you've done something, you've suddenly got a bit of a product that you can replicate and do for somebody else. And I was still, if, I mean, if I'm very honest, you know, it was, I set up my business at the end of 2015. So, you know, I ran it for 18 months. There was still a lot of development that I was doing. And I sort of called it productizing, like taking the things that I could do and, and putting them in a format that was easy for somebody to buy. And that was really hard to do at the very, very beginning. But once you'd actually done a contract with a, a particular organization, it was a lot easier because you could draw on, well, what did I actually do? I, did, I even did the same for you know public speaking. I said, well, here are the different speeches mm-hmm. that I can deliver. And it, obviously, anytime I would go and speak to an organization, I could do something that was absolutely bespoke for them. But to make it easy for them to buy, it needed to be in a format that they could imagine the product and it took me a while to learn that and it's really interesting when what you're productizing is yourself because I think that that's the bit I've just I've been doing over the last year and I kind of very similarly started off as like well I need to I'll do some here's some workshops I could do for you yeah here's some things I could speak about yeah and I stuck them up on my website and in some ways I kind of forgot about them a little bit and then one day a big corporate rang up and said yes we'd like that workshop please yeah Quickie, now I can write that for my website link. But it was months and months later. But there were other things where I sort of found myself reusing content. It's actually, actually, I've just done this talk at this thing. I hadn't been paid, but actually, I wrote all the stuff. It was interesting. I'm gonna make that available as a chunk. And even though, like, I always had a bit of a thing about consultancy, like, it's not a real startup, but actually, it has been a really good way of surfacing and supporting ideas and yeah. earning some money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> whilst, you know, the next big one comes well, along. I mean I there's no doubt. I mean, because obviously I was running my consultancy business when I was 
on the board of Clear, Clear Returns. And I did see the businesses as, you know, obviously, in so many ways, very, very different. And, you know, what uh, what you were creating was, you know, something that's absolutely amazing piece of technology and uh, IP um, that can, you know, create a, a, a huge amount of difference and, and value. And that is also very scalable. And of course, consultancy, I mean, that's one of the big challenges that, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all in the same way. But, but nonetheless, I think a lot of the same principles in terms of, you know, how you go out, how you actually, um, you know, make business happen. And, and having to be very proactive and um, resourceful about that, it, you know, is, is definitely a similarity. Absolutely. It is quite interesting. What did you learn from that whole period that perhaps you've taken back into the mm. old job? Well, the new yeah. version of yes. the old job, I guess, and, and which was harder? <laughs> um, so, well, I think, I think that one of the experiences that I sort of had was... Um, I'd been doing the job of MP for 10 years, so I had, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting you stop learning, but I did feel like I was quite good at it. I'd learned a lot. I knew what I was doing, and particularly three years in government, had really honed operating at that kind of senior political level. And then I was thrown into this environment where I didn't even know what the rules were. I didn't even know what the norms were. I would, like, come to write a proposal, and I'd just... I would actually send it sometimes to you know friends that I had that would work that worked in a professional services firm or something. I said, I have no idea pricing. You know yeah. how how do you even go about working out what numbers to put? Well, on there's this? a podcast episode in itself. Well, everybody has that exactly. question. <laughs> um, and 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 how do you present something? And and you know what's anticipated? And how do you how do you negotiate the contracts? All of which you know I learned a lot over the months that I was that I was doing it. Um, because uh, because it was just this massive learning curve, which I think was very healthy, and I also learned a bit more perspective because when you're not living politics twenty four seven, you see it in a bit more of the way that frankly most people see it, which is you know they catch the news at, te- at ten or maybe they're in the car and they listen to the news on the hour, um, and and so it's not you know it's not all encompassing. Whereas when you're in politics and and in government, you know you are you're living it daily, and it's harder to keep that sense of perspective so I've tried to try to keep that in mind having having gone back into to parliament um but I think so I think that perspective and that that sense of learning new skills and and putting myself outside of my comfort zone was probably what was particularly valuable by that time you talk about in your book the oh plug your book quickly <laughs> plug your book just um, quickly plug your book because I keep okay. talking about your book but so I haven't said it my book is called equal power uh, and how you can make it happen and it's all about what we can each individually do to improve gender equality um, and it's got tales in there of what everyone from 17 year old schoolgirls to um, you know 50 something male business leaders have done to, uh, to to improve the situation in terms of gender equality so they really it doesn't matter who you are you can make a difference on this and there's uh, loads of ideas in the book on, on what you can do. And one of the interesting things you talk about is how um, how your financial situation and your social economic background is such a barrier to politics mm. because from campaigning, all the volunteering, all of that kind of thing, there's this real financial cost and risk that a lot of women, but a lot yeah. of people from you know non-privileged backgrounds yeah. simply unable or unwilling to make. And I think it's also super true of entrepreneurs Absolutely. and startups. It's a really small privileged group of people yeah. that can afford to 
go, okay, I'm going to work for 18 months for free and I've no idea if it's going to work and heck, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? <laughs> exactly. Um, if it all goes wrong. And the second person's asking, should I take the plunge? And I think it's one of those interesting, I mean, you, you and your husband both lost your jobs at the same time, young family, um, the financial risk and toll around the startup yeah. myth yeah. is very stressful. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, I, I, but, and, you know, and I think a lot of other people are in, you know, in much worse circumstances, particularly if you're talking about young people who are trying to take that plunge and they've not had any opportunity to, you know, have any kind of investments or any previous, you know, career or build up any kind of savings. Um, so, so I, you know, I entirely understand that. And I saw a tweet earlier today, which just said, journalists, if you're writing a story about how some amazing entrepreneur beat the odds and got their product to market, and there's a sentence in it that says, they were able to do it by a sizable uh, gift of money from their parents, then just stop writing <laughs> yeah. the article right there. And it's not to say that people who have that kind of privilege and, and rich background and haven't done a great job with entrepreneurs, because many of them have. But as you say, they have had that that head start in being able to to do that and, and as I say I recognize you know that that compared to many people actually you know we were in there still despite having both lost our jobs a, a relative privileged uh, position but you do still worry about how you're going to pay the bills and and that and it's harder to be innovative um when when you're under that level of stress and so I think I mean certainly for us um securing some even small regular income actually was a huge psychological support because even if you're having to be very frugal, but if you, you know, if you if you've basically got you know a contribution each month to some of your costs being covered, um, then that that sort of enables you to have a little bit more room to to pursue the other opportunities. And I suppose for anybody in that situation, it is considering you know, everybody will have a different set of what the costs are, what their outgoings are, what the housing situation is, um, and and that ha- I mean that inevitably will be part of how they decide whether it's something they can do. And I think it's I think it's a really important conversation you have to have as, as a family mm-hmm. and you have to think about um, because the second person says all the entrepreneurs seem very young and that's not true actually. It depends what network you're going out to. Uh, and, you know, all of the entrepreneurs I w- work with are either sort of, yeah, I've got a group in their early 20s mm-hmm. but a lot of them are 40 plus and are coming out of corporate careers or are feeling that you know, that redundancy or some other circumstances yeah. triggered them doing this. It's not all about young people. But um, you certainly need to think about finances all of it really super carefully. I mean, another issue which I think is, is kind of interesting and relevant was um, one of the decisions that husband and I had to think about was what to do about childcare. Because we had, you know, a young son, uh, he's now four, and um, he has... <laughs> As well as losing our jobs, we obviously lost our place in the House of Commons nursery. <laughs> that was probably one of the saddest goodbyes was to sort of go and pick up the little, you know, bag of, you know, spare clothes. Um, yeah, it's, it's slightly, it's slightly sad. You know, we we had this sort of. I remember the discussion I actually had with my husband about this, and uh, and he was he was pretty clear and he was absolutely right that. What we needed to do, and we, we did have some redundancy um, money to, to you know decide what to how, to how to effectively invest in our future career, and um, and one of the decisions we took very early on was to pay for childcare, and you know we had for until we got childcare sorted this scenario where we were both trying to start to restart our careers. But while looking after our son, so only one of us could be out at any given time. And it very clearly became apparent to us that that was going to just 
hugely slow down what we were able to do in terms of all of that networking. And, it, and I think I took a little bit more sort of persuading that, that that was something that was a sensible financial move because it sort of felt like, well, that's not a, almost a necessary cost. But the point was trying to do that while full-time looking after a 16-month-old child, um, I think was going to be you know incredibly difficult. And um, and so I, I would encourage people, again, people who've got their own financial circumstances and, and thoughts, but to, to not make an immediate assumption about you can't afford to have any childcare whatsoever because sometimes investing a bit in that might actually help you to have those meetings and so on that that can land you that next opportunity much more quickly and I think it was a it was a really important decision that we made actually. That's really useful and that's really helpful advice because it's coming back to that serendipity that you talked about opportunity you know opportunity doesn't come you create a million and one possible routes for it to fall towards you and then you kind of like Keep going, yeah. hold your breath, yes. try to survive financially <laughs> and emotionally long enough for like one of yes, those channels exactly. to produce. Exactly. Um, and I think you're right, you know, if you haven't created the environment source almost like to be able to work on that near full time, yeah, then the chances of those opportunities actually converting in the time frame exactly. are, are very remote. And that's even when you have what the asset yeah. of a brand yeah um I mean, and I, I mean my brand was not anywhere near as well known as you but I still I've been innovator yeah, of the year absolutely. and top 10 of this and one or two of stuff so I still had that and actually it it felt like it counted for nothing I yeah. was as scared as anybody else yeah I was as financially worried I still am although my husband said to me the other day you know calm down and if yeah. it gets really bad actually tell people you wouldn't mind some kind of paid work yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, good plan. Absolutely. Totally do that. Well, this is the other thing because I mean, it's this how much do you do for free? I mean, which again, you know, the, number, the number of people I had conversations about this. Oh, yeah. Was, and, was, and I'm afraid I was one of those awful exploiters as well. You know, come be on my board and I can't possibly pay you. Um, and <laughs> that, in fairness, I'm now doing that for a lot of other people and they yeah. can't possibly pay me. And it's exactly. a good investment in myself. Well, exactly. But but I mean, I think there, does, there do need to be rules. Um, and I, there were some great people who gave me advice that, that basically sort of, they even gave me sort of words to say. Like, which I mean, the first time you spit them out, is like, I usually charge for my time or do you yeah. have a budget for this event? And obviously that's different when you're doing something for a charity or as you say, an organisation that, that does not have the capacity. But when you're talking about you know, big commercial organisations that ought to be able to pay for people's time. And when you're in a circumstance where you are, you know, working for a startup that is paying you a salary or you're, you're in a salary job with, you know, with a major corporate and you're invited to speak at a conference, well, obviously you, you wouldn't charge for going to speak at a conference because that's you're already being paid for your time. But when you are running your own business, then actually yeah. nobody's paying for your time and so you do need to make your decisions there might still sometimes be the odd opportunity that is just so amazing that you do it anyway but if you create that expectation I mean I think this this um this this whole area is something which I suspect also there is a gender gap in how often men and women are uh, asked expected to do things for free or indeed how much they will accept doing things for free or challenge whether or not. Because the number of times I, I was also struck that when you do ask the question that actually there can be a budget because after all they are paying mm-hmm. for a budget for the event. They are hiring premises. They are giving people refreshments. They, you know, often people are paying to go to the yeah. event. But if they can Everything get you for free, they will. commercial except you. Yeah, exactly. 
Interesting. That's super good advice, and I'm totally mindful, A, that your lunch is still sitting over there, and, <laughs> and of time. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Joe Swinson, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Arts. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or find out more at vickybrock.com slash podcast. Uh-huh.